welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast aimed at paediatric trainees or anyone interested in child health. I'm Asim, one of the paediatric trainees in Wales and one of the presenters for Dragon Bites. This week we're going to be kicking off a new sub-series looking at the effects of COVID in children. Over the course of the series we're going to try and tackle the topic of COVID from a number of different perspectives. The first episode is going to feature Dr Alastair Munro, a paediatric registrar and currently a senior clinical research fellow in paediatric infectious diseases based at Southampton. He was interviewed by both myself and my Dragon Bites co-host, Dr Tom Cromarty. Alistair joined us to discuss the basics of the coronavirus in itself and to tell us a little bit about the vaccines that are currently available. This is the first of a two-part episode, so make sure you join us next week for the remainder of the episode. Anyway, let's get started. Well, hello. Welcome to another edition of Dragon Bites. Uh, we are joined today by Dr. Alistair Munro, and um, I'm going to let him introduce himself to get a bit of an idea of where he's coming from. And we also have with us uh, co-founder of Dragon Bites, Asim Javed. Well, hello. It's a real pleasure to speak to you guys today. As you said, my name's Alistair Munro. I'm a a Senior Clinical Research Fellow in Paediatric Infectious Diseases in Southampton. So I'm a paediatric registrar, but currently uh, out of training, doing a PhD and doing uh, clinical research, which um, was originally in vaccines and antibiotics and is now much more in vaccines since since COVID came around. Uh, And I've been um, involved in quite a bit of uh, research and evidence synthesis about uh, COVID in children over the past couple of years, as well as being involved in running some uh, vaccine clinical trials uh, for children as well as adults, which I guess is why I'm here. It's it's exactly why you're here. Um, So I've just, I suppose we're recording this on the 18th of February, 2021, and we've never had to do... 2022. 2022 we've gone 40 year what's happened um time is flying (laughs) it is um we uh we'll just be talking for ourselves in this conversation and um i I suppose it's probably uh recent to add that uh, you need to just make sure that your local and national guidelines are adhered to and that um evidence and advice i suppose will change as time goes on as, as we'll probably find out during this conversation so I think to start with, um, since we've got a hell of a lot to cover, um, we'll try and succinctly uh, discuss some of the background behind uh, COVID uh, and what, where it's come from. So, Alistair, if we could just start with um, finding a bit about coronavirus 2019. It's got some clues in the name there, but um, kind of what is it and, and how, how does it spread? Um, that, might, that might be a good start of a 10. Yeah, um, so it's um, it is a coronavirus, um, which is so called because the appearance of the virus under an electron microscope has got all of these big spiky things sticking out of it and makes it look a bit like a crown. But there are it's certainly not the only one in the family that affects humans. 
the other ones that most people will be familiar with will be the other really severe versions like um, the SARS virus or MERS. But there are also other versions that um, are much more mild and cause a common cold, um, mainly in children, but also in adults that have been around for a long time. This version is obviously new, which is why it's got 19 in its name, because it was first discovered in humans in um, 2019, emerged originally from China, as I'm sure most people will be aware of the story uh, now. Um, there's uh, some debate over the origin of the of the virus, where it, how it originally came to be infecting humans, but uh, the most likely scenario is thought to be that um, it's a zoonotic disease, so originally affected bats and has uh, somehow transferred into the human population and has done a, a pretty stellar job of that. It's mainly a respiratory virus. Um, it enters cells via the uh, ACE2 protein, um, but because that protein is found all over the body, um, whilst it is predominantly respiratory, it can get into different places uh, if it's really widespread and cause problems. Um, and uh, it appears that the main route of transmission is probably through uh, aerosolized particles, but mainly over short distances. So while we're mostly familiar with what we call airborne transmission from viruses like measles, um, which can hang in the air for many, many hours and infect lots and lots of people, it appears to be mainly um, sort of very uh, short distance transient uh, aerosolized transmission. So um, it can be really, really infectious. But one of the really interesting things about it, I guess, is that um, it also suffers from something called overdispersal. And what that means is most people who get infected will not infect anyone else. But a very small proportion of people who get infected infect lots and lots of people. So we think something like 80% of transmission occurs from about only 15% of people who are infected. And we call them super spreaders. So it leads to some really interesting dynamics about transmission out, out in the community and can make it uh, quite difficult to manage, especially because a lot of the transmission occurs before you develop symptoms. And this has been one of the things that's made it really difficult to control, I guess. So yeah, that's, that's probably it in a nutshell. That is in a nutshell. And that's super interesting about the the specific individuals who are who are significantly spreading it. So, do we have any idea of what those characteristics might be of those individuals, or um, you know, is, is the jury out? How do you identify a super spreader? It's a good it's a good question. There, there's no really conclusive evidence. It does seem that. Um, the amount of virus that's found within the nose and throat varies very, very widely. And that a small number of people um, have really extraordinary viral loads, not always very well correlated with symptoms. But then there's a, you know, a, a theoretical link there that perhaps those people are the ones who are doing, you know, the most spreading, it would seem to make sense. But to be honest, because there's so much um, interpersonal variation and even within an individual variation in viral loads over time, it's very difficult to make those links because, you know, we're talking many, many orders of magnitude difference in variation and the correlation isn't, you know, necessarily a very strong one. So it, it's been something that's very difficult to to study. There's some very, there's some sort of broad strokes 
you know, viral load, a higher viral load probably makes you more infectious. Having a higher symptom burden probably also makes you more infectious. But then in the same stroke, you can have, you know, you don't have to have an extremely high viral load or any symptoms at all in order to be able to to transmit. So, no, I don't think we've got a, I don't think we've got a brilliant handle on uh, detecting the super spreaders, unfortunately. Okay. And we were going to come on to a section later talking about um, various um, ideas that get put out there. And and what what about children specifically and their uh, <laughs> description as super spreaders? Uh, is that something that it comes out in the evidence or not so much? Um, well, it, it's been one of the more controversial aspects of the pandemic, I guess. The, the reason people were really concerned about children transmitting was twofold. So one is that historically with respiratory viruses, children have been uh, one of the most sort of important uh, pools of infection. Um, and that's because we are most familiar with flu. And we know, for example, younger children are more susceptible to catching flu, have a higher symptom burden when they get it and, and spread it very readily amongst each other. So, you know, we had a sort of a, a, a prior model of why children might be um, very good spreaders or, or might be the most important spreaders. And then the next concern was when we had the very early evidence from China that um, there was this really strong age-dependent effect on disease severity um, and very few cases in children were being detected, everyone was worried that there were just lots of children with no symptoms or subclinical symptoms who were just rampantly spreading the virus amongst the community undetected um, and that this was going to be a really big problem. Now, what's really fascinating is that neither of those two things have really come to fruition. In fact, it, it appears to be sort of the opposite, actually. So, for example, all of the early evidence suggested that actually younger children in particular are less susceptible to acquiring infection given equivalent exposure to adults, which is obviously the, the opposite of flu. And then the other thing we found is that in general, individuals who have a very low symptom burden or are completely asymptomatic tend to transmit much less readily than um, those who have lots of symptoms. Um, and looking at the, uh, the screening, population screening evidence and seroprevalence surveys from early in the pandemic, certainly children were infected much less often than, than adults when, uh, you know, when whole societies were in uh, lockdown. And it's, it looks like um, all things being equal, young adults are really probably the biggest transmitters of the the virus and in the pre-vaccine era almost all major waves in uh at least in high income countries were predominantly driven by young adults um and that's probably to do with the fact that they uh, socially mix a lot and that they're more susceptible to getting infected than children and probably develop more more symptoms so um, children as the super spreaders has never really uh, come about. The one, the one uh, slight change to that has been over the past few months um, in the UK, what we've seen is once you've vaccinated basically all of your adults and you remove all restrictions on children, you see a lot more transmission just amongst children than we saw in previous waves where no one really had any immunity and there were 
uh, you know, mitigations in place. So there's been a real shift in dynamics over time because children are now the group with the lowest levels of immunity. So you would expect to see more transmission. And we also now have much more transmissible variants. So for example, in schools in spring or autumn of 2020, really surprisingly low levels of transmission seen between children and uh, which in schools, which seem to be vastly outweighed by the transmission occurring in the community. And that's flipped on its head really since probably last um, September, October time, when, uh, you know, we've had the Delta and the Omicron variant, which are much more transmissible, that all of the the lids have been sort of taken off and uh, and children have been allowed to mix freely. So a much higher proportion of transmission against children uh, now. Wow. Um, it seems quite... Uh quite complicated and, and seems difficult to tease out as you've got changing dynamics with the specific viruses involved or specific strain of the virus and differing levels of immunity from vaccination and natural immunity very difficult to tease out but that definitely yeah sounds like there's a um a, a reason to dispute the super spreader in children uh, myth um, you mentioned earlier about asymptomatic. So, can someone be completely asymptomatic for their whole for the whole period that they have contracted the virus, or is it just in that initial phase and then they have some kind of symptom, whether it's mild or not? Yeah, no, definitely, you can be completely asymptomatic throughout the whole course of your illness. We're trying to estimate how high that proportion is is really difficult for for obvious reasons that it's difficult to find people who don't have, have any symptoms at all and that and they'll always be unrepresent uh, underrepresented in um you know case-based finding but probably the best evidence we have is overall somewhere in the region of um one in five to one in three people may never develop symptoms during the course of their infection and that proportion rises with age and so for children, that's somewhere between 40 and 50% of cases never develop uh, any symptoms at all. Um, so yeah, quite quite a significant proportion of cases go, uh, uh, go completely undetected symptom-wise. And we see this, to be honest, quite often in screening for clinical trials of vaccines. Obviously, quite often one of the inclusion criteria is um, that you've not had any previous uh, PCR positive um, infections or, or had COVID. And then we screen them for antibodies at their baseline. And we find, you know, a reasonable number of people who have had who have had COVID and just never realised, never had a test because they've never had symptoms. Well, wow, so that must be making your uh, your your research more difficult <laughs> given that lots more people have now yeah I, it is and it isn't because we, we because we know it's a problem we you just factor it in when you calculate how many people you need for your study you just you assume that you know uh, a, a, an estimated proportion of your people who enter will, will turn out to be positive after enrollment so yeah you we just factor it in so hopefully it's not a big issue for us but it's interesting making the phone calls to participants and explaining why we can't enroll them in the study because they've had covid and they're very surprised to find out that they've had covid at some point very interesting um and you mentioned about different uh, variants through through time and are there some really kind of obvious and specific differences with their effects on children um, obviously, transmission seems to be um, 
higher with with the more recent variants. But are there any other differences with effects on children? Um, there, there probably were with Alpha and Delta, although they were almost imperceptible to clinicians. So if you look uh, at, at the broad epidemiological data, it appears that they probably caused more severe disease overall. But given the you know the 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 rate of severe disease in children is so low, it, it's an it's an imperceptible difference to clinicians that if you know if they were somewhat more severe. Where we have seen the difference is with the Omicron variant, and that's to do uh, with uh, some very specific changes. So Omicron uh, obviously is a, is a really highly mutated variant, uh, and the changes to its spike protein have sort of changed the way it, it enters cells. So it, it doesn't do it in quite the same way as previous variants. And what this means is that it's sort of lost its affinity for infecting lung cells, but has a much higher proclivity for cells in the upper airway and bronchus. Now, that's good for uh, adults and, and probably for most children, because that results in less severe disease, because you tend to get very sick if you have a lot of lung infection, because it's the respiratory illness that, that makes you very poorly. But what we have noticed is the increased rate of upper respiratory infection and disease has caused uh, a higher degree of what we would consider sort of normal respiratory symptoms in infants and young children. Um, I won't have to tell you guys that the, <laughs> the most common presentation we probably see in all of acute pediatric medicine is upper respiratory tract infections in sort of preschool age or, or infant children. And we really saw very little of that actually from COVID until Omicron came along. And now it's looking much more like one of these normal respiratory viruses that causes um, sore throat, cough, runny noses, um, uh, and febrile illnesses in those children. And then for the smaller babies, it's quite often uh, causing a croup-like illness or even bronchiolitis with that infection of the, 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 the bronchi and bronchioles. Um, so yeah, so Omicron has looked a bit different to previous COVID, but then uh, interestingly, what that's meant is it's looked more similar to other respiratory viruses that we're probably more familiar with. So, yeah, an interesting dynamic there. Well, it sounds like with the uh, respiratory tract infections, bronchiolitis and croup that you've covered uh, 95% of the things that we see. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, no, so, so thank you, Alex. I think that's been really helpful. Uh, I mean, it's... It's interesting to hear how you know. I mean, we've all witnessed it at the at the um, sh shop front, so to speak. But you know, we don't really get that many poorly children with COVID, to be honest. Not with the typical respiratory symptoms you see amongst adults. But getting some sort of idea that like forty to fifty percent of children are entirely asymptomatic is really useful. I suppose following on from that, uh, uh, my my next question would be: is How do the demographics amongst children break down? Are there um, differences between different um, ages, ethnic minority groups as to how, what we can expect to see or what we've been seeing? Yep, there is. Um, so there's a really interesting uh, risk gradient with age, even amongst children. So certainly we see the highest rate of hospitalizations and ICU admissions, and, and even you know, though they're very rare, the highest rates of deaths in children under the age of one. 
Um, and again, this follows a very, uh, that's a quite a normal pattern, I guess, for us in, in all illnesses in children. And that risk declines into uh, sort of mid-childhood. But then interestingly, the risk rises again during adolescence. So that, there's a U, what we call sort of a, U, a slightly lopsided U-shaped gradient to risk. So the risk is much higher in the first year of life, falls quite quickly, and then rises again slowly in, in adolescence. So that the highest risk children by age are children under the age of one, and then children sort of aged 15 plus, really, you know, going into young adulthood. And then obviously, the other big risk factor, which is very similar to all other respiratory viruses in children is the presence of comorbidities, and particularly um, children with complex needs or neurodisability are, are probably the highest risk children, uh, children who have um, severe uh, chronic respiratory um, uh, comorbidities, but, but mainly really babies with chronic lung disease of prematurity. Um, actually, reassuringly, I don't think there's been any big signals that, for example, children with cystic fibrosis suffer very severe um, disease with uh, COVID and obviously children with um, cardiac comorbidities. So this, the same kids that we might worry about during a nasty RSV season getting very poorly are, um, you know, the same kids who we'd be worried about with, with COVID-19. In terms of ethnic um, groups, it, it's a really interesting question. I think that's been quite difficult to tease out with children because it's difficult to detect the difference between uh, the groups of children who are possibly at higher risk of becoming infected. And it does seem like um, uh, children from ethnic minority backgrounds might be um, at higher risk of getting infected due to sort of a combination of socio-demographic factors or, and then risk of severe disease. So, it, you know, if they, if they all had the same risk of getting infected, would we see children from ethnic minority backgrounds getting more severe disease still? I think that's really hard to to know. But I think we do certainly see uh, these children being overrepresented in, you know, hospitalised cases and, and that kind of thing. Thank you, Alistair. And I, I suppose given, uh, the, you know, our two age groups that seem to be at risk, we've already discussed in how in under ones we're seeing more of a sort of croup-like um, syndrome or, or perhaps a bronchiolitis. Does that mean with our adolescent group also more at risk? Are they presenting more with perhaps adult-type symptoms? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So what, what we see then in the older children is the transition into the adult phenotype of disease. So they're the ones who are mo 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 much more likely to be presenting with very um, severe respiratory decompensation, ARDS, uh, cytokine storm, and, uh, and that kind of thing. So yeah, then, then it, it's starting to look more like uh, adult phenotypes of disease. Fab, that's been really helpful, thanks. And I guess... We, we discussed a lot about the sort of direct impact of, of COVID on, on the paediatric population, but this has had indirect impacts on, on them as well, or certainly there are risks of indirect impact. Um, so I suppose it's difficult to discuss COVID amongst children without discussing the various measures we've taken and possibilities in the future for in terms of returning to school, um, education risks and uh, and policies around mask wearing and, and, and such. So I, I suppose that that's, that would be a useful thing to, to move on to next. So when it comes to children in school, um, what have what have been the thought processes around, you know, mask wearing advice and, and, and uh, the like? 
Um, I guess there's there's a few things to consider there. So one is, so you, you need to think about the benefits and the harms of any intervention like this. So you've got the benefits to the children themselves to consider, which given the um, you know, extremely low rates of severe illness um, are pretty are pretty minimal in in regards to you know children's health. Um, the possible benefit is if you really think you're significantly reducing transmission, you might be able to reduce school absenteeism from having to self self isolate. Um, but uh, otherwise, few health benefits specifically for children from the masks. And then the concern was more preventing transmission because any additional transmission that occurs in schools has the risk of spreading in the community and eventually making its way to more vulnerable people. I guess what's been really difficult to tell is really how effective asking children to wear masks in school is for preventing transmission. Um, I think the the mechanistic evidence is, is convincing that it, it should do something but i think there's a growing recognition that uh you know non-medical grade masks probably do much less than we'd hoped and then once you take into account uh you know how well they fit whether people are touching them pulling them down over their nose you know whether they're just going and sitting and having lunch together all without their masks on and shouting and laughing you know, how much impact is really them having masks on for the rest of the day uh, having. And then the harms are, you know, uh, prob- probably relatively trivial for most children in the short term because it's just being uncomfortable, difficulties with communication that we'll all be familiar with from now having the mask full time in, in hospital and sort of difficulty hearing each other or, or understanding when there's background noise um and that's mainly for older children and then i guess for younger children where uh the uk and much of europe have aligned on their thinking is that because the they're even lower risk of severe disease sort of young, you know primary school age children they they probably suffer more from the inability to communicate and the the um you know difficulties with interference with social cues and communication and because there's so low risk of severe disease that in those age groups really you know and and of course their compliance and everything uh, and uh, ability to sort of stick to um, yeah. PPE protocols is perhaps not as good as uh, other people that that for them it, it's just really not worthwhile any benefits you might get would be so small as to sort of be be outweighed by you know, the inconvenience and the uh, disruption to, to learning uh, and socialising amongst those age groups, I guess. That's great. Thank you, Alistair. Um, I suppose the, uh, sort of related to this question, g- given that, that perhaps uh, children aren't the best group for, for shielding themselves in the way that an adult might do or protecting others as an adult might do, I should say. Um, there are probably, you know, there there are, as we discussed already, some high risk groups amongst children for getting more severe versions of, of the COVID infection. So do you feel that there is a role for shielding certain um, popula- populations amongst children and, and, and which which amongst them might need shielding? Um, I guess we need to I guess we need to be careful when we talk about shielding, because the word took on a, a very specific meaning very early in the pandemic that I, I think in retrospect 
there's now a lot of questions over um, whether, given the uncertainty at the time, I think there was a, a need to sort of better be safe than sorry. But I think there's a lot of recognition of uh, how what a huge psychological and emotional burden shielding put on people. And this was essentially the advice to not leave your house or have any contact with anyone outside your household. And for anyone who was inside your household to even try and distance themselves from you and to try and avoid any social contact with other people. I mean, quite quite extraordinary advice. And I think one of the good things the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health did was quite early on to say, look, we've looked at this evidence and even children from clinically vulnerable groups do not appear to be very high risk of severe illness from COVID-19. And I think that's important to say is, you know, we've talked about groups who are slightly higher risk than others. But even so, children with significant comorbidities are still way, way lower risk than an elderly person, you know, over the age of 80, who's otherwise in very good health. The absolute risks are still very small, even for children with uh, the comorbidities we've discussed. Now, I think it is worth families who have children with, for example, severe uh, neurodisability to to be thinking about things they can do to reduce risk of exposure when we are going through periods where there is just so much virus around. You know, whilst they may not be at higher risk if they were to get infected then they might be from the flu they are probably much much more likely to catch the virus now than they would be to to get flu on a on a given flu season so i think there are sensible things that uh, you know that people can do and and you know the uh, the people around families who have children with these conditions to help try and reduce exposure um, you know, for example, uh, you know, we're, we're lucky to, for the time being, still have access to um, lateral flow tests and those sorts of things, um, you know, to not visit if you're ill um, uh, and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I, I do think uh, and most importantly now, I must say, is access to vaccines for these children. So any child over the age of five now in the UK can can get access to COVID-19 vaccine. And there's really nothing better you can do than than to to. To, to get those vaccines for, for children if um, they're in one of these high-risk groups. Brilliant. Thank, that was excellent. Thank you, Alistair. And, and uh, yeah, it, it, this would be a perfectly lovely segue into the chat we want to have with you about vaccines. But before we do get onto that, I just want to... I, th- I just wanted to touch upon one one element that you mentioned there, you know, um, about the sort of psychological impact that things like um, shielding ha- had on children. I suppose there's also going to be some sort of psychological and emotional impact from this long period of school closures we've had over the last few years. I suspect that it's probably too early for any evidence around this to have been coming through yet. But do you have any thoughts around that? Um, yeah, I guess the problems that there's twofold problems. So one is the acute mental health impact of um, prolonged periods of social isolation, which I think many of us who work in children's emergency department are, are seeing on the front lines. You know, we're seeing record levels of children in mental health crisis needing referral to CAMS teams. Um, eating disorders in particular have been a really significant issue. I think I don't think there's really been any point during the pandemic where we've had more COVID inpatients than uh, inpatients with mental health problems. Um, so that there is that side of things. But the other side of things is really the 
the long-term um, socioeconomic impact, um, particularly on um, inequity from prolonged school closures. So what we know is that whilst schools were closed to in-person learning, um, you know, probably the majority of uh, middle class or, um, you know, families with lots of resources probably managed quite well to maintain learning and to keep their kids, you know, occupied and get on with their work and to teach them and that sort of thing. Whereas children from more vulnerable or disadvantaged backgrounds would not have been afforded the same privileges when they were at home who had parents who were, you know, uh, having to uh, maintain work outside the home, doing frontline jobs and this sort of thing. Uh, and there's plenty of evidence now that children from underprivileged backgrounds have fallen way behind um, their peers during uh, th these time periods. And they were already behind to begin with. Um, now, the, that, that's potentially reversible with lots of investment of resources. But if it isn't reversed, what you're talking is um, a generation where essentially you've widened an already pretty big uh, gap in the ability to go on to further education for lifetime earnings. And we know that uh, you know your, your wealth um, affects your health, unfortunately. So uh, I think one of the biggest concerns is over the coming decades, how this generation is affected, particularly in terms of inequality. Um, because unfortunately, um, what you do to one generation affects the subsequent generations after them. Um, so that's a big problem. And then one of the other really massive issues that's just come out recently is a huge spike in child obesity um, during the pandemic, which again is heavily biased towards lower socioeconomic groups. So children from the most disadvantaged backgrounds have had an absolutely enormous increase in obesity. And again, that is potentially reversible, but if not, that that could result in you know countless life years lost as the result of the health effects of obesity going from childhood into later life. And we know that the biggest risk factor for obesity in later life is obesity in childhood. So I think that should be one of the most uh, urgent health investments we need in child health uh, over the coming years. Thank you, Alistair. That's been really helpful. Yeah. Oh, that um, That's an incredibly powerful statement there that you've just made on, um, on those kind of long-term effects potentially on on the exact group of individuals that we already know um, working on, you know, in EDs and on the front line are, you know, the inequalities of health already exist. So it's really sad to hear that that may be getting worse. Um, and I definitely agree with really need to work with some policies to try and address that. Um, so, yeah, sorry, it's sad to hear that. And I just wanted to say thank you to both Alistair and Tom for recording that episode for us. We'll be continuing that episode next week, so make sure you join us again for it. In the meantime, if you're interested in supporting Drag Advice, please head over to www.patreon.com forward slash where you can find out more about contributing to our podcast. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening to Dragon Bites. Thank you.